Welcome to the Mighty Littles podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Anna Zimmerman, and welcome to episode four of the Mighty Littles podcast. I had the pleasure of interviewing Corey for this episode. Her son, Ricky, was born at 24 weeks and one day. He weighed one pound, 10 ounces, and was nine and a half inches long. This podcast really highlights how Corey has become an advocate for mothers and preterm infants, in part by learning to advocate for herself and her son. The first half of this podcast really is talking about how Corey ended up in the hospital with premature rupture of membranes and preterm labor, and how she needed to advocate for herself, for people to listen to her and her concerns about how her pregnancy was going. And then the second half of the podcast, we really talk about Ricky and his 112-day stay in the NICU. He had grade four intraventricular hemorrhage. He had a bowel perforation, and he ultimately was in two different NICUs. Some of my favorite highlights from this episode are going to be Corey talking about that moment where she first felt like she became a mom. Corey really eloquently describes her process of of grief uh, while going through her NICU stay and about the importance of being given a role in the NICU as a mom. But what I love most about this podcast is Corey describing how they fought for just one more day and really the difference that one more day can make when it comes to viability, when it comes to options on resuscitation, when it comes to stability for surgery, how that one more day really makes a huge difference. I just am thrilled that Corey is joining us for the podcast today. And a word of warning, this is a long podcast, but I did not want to divide it up into two different segments. I felt like it was more important for you to just have the podcast and have the entire story and you can pause it and listen to it in different sessions if you need to. It comes in just about two hours, but uh, just I'm just warning you that it is on the long side because Corey had such great things to share. So Corey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Yeah. Excited to be here. (laughs) Yes, I am excited to have you. Um, How about you just introduce yourself to our listeners and kind of give them an idea of who you are and talk about your pregnancy a little bit to get us started off. Oof. Okay. (laughs) Um, Well, first, easy thing. Um, My name is Corey, but most people know me as Ricky's mom or, hey, you're Ricky's mom, uh, to which I'm really Excited to answer yes to. I am a proud mama to a 24 and one weeker. And that's me. That's my identity right now. (laughs) That's awesome. It's amazing how once you have a kid, you go from being whoever you were ahead of time to being so-and-so's mom, whether your baby is preterm or term or, or whatever you, it totally changes your whole identity. 100%. I remember being in a coffee shop and this is right when like soon after we had gotten home and I'm sitting there waiting for my coffee and I feel like somebody kind of giving me those eyes like they're kind of staring at me, but I'm staring ahead. Do I know this person? How do I know this person? 
And then she finally just comes up to me and she's like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. Are you Ricky's mom? And I'm like, yeah, I am. She was like, you don't know me, but I saw your article in the paper. Can I hug you? Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I am very happy that that is um, how most people refer me now. And I'm, I'm super proud of that. Yeah, it's a it's an identity that you're happy to have. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. why don't you tell us a little bit about your pregnancy and how <laughs> how you kind of led up to figuring out that you were going to be in the NICU for your stay? Oh, man, that was a surprise. Um, but yeah, I'll go ahead and start. My pregnancy was fairly normal uh, in the beginning. I should add that I did have um, a miscarriage, my first pregnancy. Uh, Dan and I, about a year after my father had passed away, we had moved from Brooklyn to back home to Colorado and the town that I grew up in. And um, this was all during the time my dad was sick and after he passed away, uh, we took some time, and then Dan and I wanted to find a home and settle down and start our family. And I had gotten pregnant right away, and we were super excited. And then about at nine weeks, I had um, a miscarriage at my in-laws. And my OB kind of monitored me through, um, explained that it was pretty normal, to which I cringe now just thinking about how normal, how normalized people make miscarriage and just kind of told us, you know, we're going to watch your HCG levels. And once you're down to a certain point, then you guys could start trying again. It took us a little bit longer our second time. But once I got pregnant, everything seemed pretty normal. We were excited. I, I popped really, really early. Um, so I had a, a little pop belly pretty early in my pregnancy to the point where people would be like, oh, <laughs> uh, any day, huh? And I'm like, no, um, actually, <laughs> not even close. But in reality, yeah, <laughs> now that I know, everything seemed pretty normal up until about 18 weeks. We were in Nashville celebrating my niece's college graduation with um, my sisters and their families and having a great time. Um, I was feeling wonderful. We were having um, just fun. I had never been in Nashville. We were listening to live music and, and taking it all in. And um, I was 18 weeks. I had gotten the clearing from my OB, like, go spend some time with your family. It'll be fun. Um, we had been shopping that day. And um, Everything was great. We went on a bike ride. Uh, we came back, and the next morning, I had woken up pretty early, and I needed to go to the restroom. So I walked down the stairs, and all of a sudden, I just felt this surge of liquid come from me. So I ran to the bathroom, and I remember looking into the toilet and just seeing fresh blood. And... I didn't know what to do. I froze and then I let out this blood curdling scream for Dan. And I thought for sure I, I had miscarried again. It, it looked exactly how it did when I miscarried. Um, it was a lot more blood and I was panicked. I woke up the entire house um, and everybody, you know, came over and, and I was shaking and they were trying to calm me down. Um, 
One of my sisters is a first responder and my brother-in-law is a firefighter first responder. And so they're like, you know, sometimes this happens. It's okay. We're going to call your doctor. By this time, Dan's already on the phone um, on the on the line with our trying to get a hold of our OB. And they're telling him, you know, just calm down. Go ahead. If they have an emergency room over there, then take her to the emergency room. They should have her checked out. So we jumped in a cab and we took a ride over to the Vanderbilt um, Hospital in Nashville, which is a fabulous um, hospital. And they actually have an emergency room for labor and delivery. Once we got there, um, they got me in right away, hooked me up to monitors. And they're like, there it is. There's that heartbeat. You know, it's strong as ever. Uh, Everything's okay. You know, what had happened is uh, they explained the subchorionic hemorrhage and that sometimes that can happen. They had asked like how much blood I thought I lost, um, what I saw as far as tissue or anything. Um, so we gave those details and by what they can tell, they didn't give me an ultrasound, um, but they had talked to us about pre-previa and previa and um, that being that I had a miscarriage before and then this is happening, that I would maybe be at higher risk um, for for the previa and then to also um, be aware that I might have to be on bed rest uh, at some point during my pregnancy. So that was all pretty scary. This is my first pregnancy. My sisters have had kids before and none of this was like, you know, in their wheelhouse. So I'm kind of alone in all of this and, and just thinking, um, you know, what, what, what does this mean? Um, right. Not really having answers. So they told us that they would follow up with our OB. It was during the weekend, let them know what they thought. And to, as soon as I got back home, to, to, you know, go ahead and follow up with him. Um, advise that I t- kind of take it easy. I really beat myself up because I just kept going over and over like what I did the day before. And it was like, oh my gosh, I, I was on those cruiser bikes. Like, did I walk too much? Did I, all those things. Isn't it uh, crazy how our mind immediately <laughs> goes to what did we do to cause this to happen when... Yeah, I mean, 100%, whether it's, I mean, miscarriages are really, really common. And Mm -hmm. uh, I know when I had one of mine, I was like, oh, my gosh, if I hadn't worked out so hard on the bike the day before, Mm -hmm. this wouldn't have happened. Or if I hadn't gone and visited whoever, right? Like, there's always some way that you think, oh, this is my fault, when in actuality, it's not. It, this isn't because you walked around too much or that you were on a cruiser bike or that I rode a bike the day before, right? Like, mm-hmm. it just, these are just things that can happen with pregnancies. Um, and it, I'm always amazed in all of the interviews that I've been doing, almost everybody has a story about a miscarriage before um, a successful pregnancy, it, at least in the people that I've interviewed so far. Um mm-hmm. It, it is more common than people realize. So I didn't mean to interrupt, but like, no, no not it's not because you did the cruiser bike. This is, yeah. this was a subchorionic hemorrhage. It's, it's just the way things happened. Um, and it's nothing that you did. Yeah. Um, so true. And even to this day, you know, I, I can even go down that rabbit hole of, of the what ifs and why and all the things that I could have done differently. Um, 
it's a rabbit hole. <laughs> it is. It's a, the, I call it the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The shoulda, coulda, wouldas that they, they, they can kill you because oh, there's always something you would do different in hindsight. But you could have it, everything could have still ended up the same even if you hadn't done all those. And yeah, the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. We just got to leave those in the trash. <laughs> I'll leave them in the trash. Uh, yeah. It's a slippery slope. Got to leave them away. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I had followed up uh, with with my OB, um, we got back from our trip. I took it easy. Um, you know, just in fear, uh, like they had told me, you know, just take it easy. You could be on bed rest, um, looking at the subchorionic hemorrhage and of course, Googling (laughs) the rabbit hole of Google, um, being so terrified, like until my, my next appointment, Um, and my OB was on vacation when we got back. So I had gone to see one of the other doctors in the clinic. Um, as soon as I got there, she hooked me up to the monitors. Again, there's Ricky's, um, strong heartbeat. And, you know, she had told me, okay, like everything looks good. You're going to go ahead and have your 20 week appointment, um, with your OB. Everything looks fine up until now. He'll go ahead and talk to you about, you know, the, the hemorrhage and then also talk to you about the previa. And, you know, since he has your history a little bit better, he'll be able to talk to you. Um, so I didn't have much from that appointment other than just kind of the being put at by, at at ease, um, by hearing the heartbeat and everything. So we went home and a couple days later, I followed up, uh, with my 20 week appointment and, we talked about Nashville. My OB actually had graduated um, from Vanderbilt. Oh, uh, wow. So, <laughs> yeah. So we talked about that a little bit. And then it was just kind of like immediate going through my ultrasound and him basically telling me, you know, it's really way too early to even say previa or pre-previa. And I don't agree Um I think that can happen and I think everything's going to be fine. I don't think we have anything to worry about here. You know, you still have um, some time for that cervix to like kind of move over and that, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to thicken. Um, yeah. As the uterus grows, it kind of pulls the placenta further yeah. away from the cervix. Yes. So that's kind of what he was waiting for. And what gave us assurance that it was too early to tell, not to freak out about it, not to stress about it. And, you know, things would be fine. We just took faith into that and carried on. Uh, Fast forward (laughs) to about 23 weeks, uh, 23 weeks and six days or 26 weeks and five, I guess. The day before, the Colorado State Fair is in my hometown of Pueblo, Colorado. So we had gone during that time to um, to hang out with family and walked around. And I remember being so hot. And <laughs> I was like, I just need a, like, I just need a break. Um, I remember wanting a funnel cake so bad. Um, and eating a funnel cake and spending time with my aunt and uncle and my mom and Dan and then going home and I just wasn't feeling good. I was like, my legs kind of ache. My mom encouraged me to, she was like, well, maybe you should just take a bath. And I'm like, mom, I can't take a bath. I'm pregnant. You know, and just like, I, I was so diligent about the things, which is another thing that you'd be, I'm like, I did everything right. Yes. Like, <laughs> why? Um, 
you know, I can't take a bath. And she was like, just put your legs in. It's fine. Um, the next day I went to work, I was feeling better. So I'm in work, I'm at work and I'm at my office and I'm talking to one of my colleagues and I'm like, gosh, I've had this weird feeling like, like I keep peeing my pants or something. I'm like, something is happening. I don't know. This is my first pregnancy. Of course, I don't know what to expect. And she's laughing at me because she's, you know, on her second child and she's like, oh, you 100% peed your pants. <laughs> I'm like, really this early? Like, I don't know. I just, she's like, yeah, like totally normal. You probably just peed a little bit. Uh, so, you know, it was, we were kind of laughing it off. Well, as the day went on, I started getting more and more uncomfortable. Um, and I had told my boss, I just don't feel right. Like it's not stopping. I had gone home and I changed and everything and she was like, well, if you don't feel good, like maybe you should call your doctor. And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and call, called, um, the nurse, you know, told me that my doctor was in with a patient. Um, and that yes, peeing my pants was very normal. <laughs> yeah. Even if you didn't feel like that's what was happening, it very well could have been. Yeah. That was kind of like the prelude to, into Ricky's traumatic welcoming into into the world um so there I was 23 weeks and six days I was encouraged to um go to labor and delivery if I felt like anything was wrong for sure um but they would likely just send me home so I called Dan um and I told him you know I think I'm gonna go I don't know this doesn't feel right yeah and that was like the first moment my intuition kind of kicked in and went to labor and delivery, filled out the paperwork. They hooked me up to the monitors and there was that strong heartbeat. And they were like, everything looks great. Um, we're going to go ahead and test you for infection and to check you and make sure everything's okay. Um, I never saw an OB. I only saw a nurse that day. Okay. I remember having the monitor. I remember the nurse coming in. This nurse wore the brightest red lipstick. <laughs> I don't know why that pops in my head, but, you know, Dan and I are just kind of looking at her and she's talking with this, these bright red lips and, and telling us, you know, everything looks great. We're going to go ahead and test you for infection. And she comes and I don't exactly, maybe Dr. Zimmerman, you could probably talk about this a little bit more, but the paper that they test. Mm -hmm, to um, see if you've ruptured. Yeah. And so they did the paper test or she had done the paper test and did like the cotton swab test and um, came back and she had told me that I had tested positive for infection, for a yeast infection, and that sometimes these infections can um, cause false negatives for preterm labor. But on the monitor, it wasn't showing that I was having like active labor signs right. at all. Um, so that it was likely just this yeast infection that was causing my discomfort. So the doctor on call had prescribed me six days of antibiotics. She gave me a pamphlet that kind of talked about infection in pregnancy and um, advised me that, you know, everything should be okay. You're just going to take the antibiotics. That's what this fluid is. You, It's not ambiotic fluid. It's just fluid from infection. 
advise that we go home. I had asked, like, do you think I should go to work? And she was like, oh, yeah, like, keep your 24-week appointment with your doctor. I was supposed to have, like, the glucose test, the next appointment. Yeah. Um, dodge that. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we'll follow up with your OB. Um, and he should call you. Like, he'll he'll be calling you. And we went home. Um, the, she told me to put my feet up at work, like, every couple hours if I was feeling bad. So that day I went and filled the prescription. Uh, we went home. I just wasn't feeling right. And, um, I decided to lay down. I couldn't get any rest. Uh, Dan was like, maybe I should call off a work today. And I'm like, no, 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 it's fine. Like I was told I could go to work. Like you, you're fine. He had just started his teaching job, um, at a high school. I had called off that day. I said, you know, even though they said I could go in, I just, I'm not feeling good. And I didn't get any rest. So um called in and that morning, early, 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 first thing I had called because I hadn't heard from my doctor yet. And I called and they had told me that my doctor was in with a patient, but his nurse got on the line and said, you know, doctor, I won't say his name, uh, so-and-so is in with the patient right now. But once he's out, like he's going to call and follow up with you. Like, how are you feeling told her about my symptoms. And I said, you know, I'm just not feeling right. I, I kind of start to, I'm starting to feel a little bit of pain, like in pressure. And as I look on Google <laughs> and I look up a contraction, it kind of like, that's what it feels like a little bit. Now yeah. I know I don't know what it feels like because uh, this is my first pregnancy, but as it's described, that's kind of what I'm feeling. And that's that intuition that kicks in, right? right. Like you have mm -hmm. to trust that feeling because I think that really, I don't know, saves a lot of people. Like they, I just know something is going on. I just need to be seen. You've got to trust in that intuition. Absolutely. It's just knowing your body and being in tune. And, and I'm not trying to um, be the expert here, but I know my body right. and something was telling me that something wasn't right. And so, um, she said, you know, go ahead and lay down. If you feel like you, like something's really, really wrong, I want you to go to labor and delivery and then wait for Dr. So-and-so's phone call. So I called Dan and meanwhile, as the day goes on, I'm starting to time these things. And I'm like, man, every eight minutes this comes on. And not only do I feel this way, our dog <laughs> would not leave me alone. <laughs> Banksy, who is like my little shadow anyway, he never barks. And he was just barking at me. I'm like, what, what is the deal, Banksy? You know, and I, it got to the point where I like had to take, put him in a different room. And I call, and Dan had called me during lunch to check on me. And I told him, I still haven't heard from Dr. So-and-so. And, and um, I am starting to get a little freaked out here. And Banksy keeps barking at me. And he's like, really? And I told him it's about two o'clock in the afternoon. I'm like, I I'm going, I'm I'm driving to the labor and delivery. And he's like, okay, I'm going to email for a sub and I will meet you there. Do you want me to pick you up? And I'm like, no, it's fine. You know, <laughs> I'm like, no, it's fine. I, 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 I'll drive. Um, I, but I told him, I said, but I'm packing a bag because I have a feeling I'm not coming back. Like, I just had that feeling. Drove to labor and delivery. I get there, check in. Uh, they strap me up and they're like, there's that strong heartbeat. 
And you're and like, there's the- how about those every eight minute things I'm feeling? Are those there too? Yeah. Because I really right. want to know about those. Yeah. Can you explain those? Um, which they did. Uh, they were telling me that they were variables that were happening on the monitor, likely due to um, the discomfort of the yeast infection, and that um, the variables that were happening weren't contractions. They could be like Braxton Hicks or, or something like that, but um, they weren't contractions. So I wasn't in active labor. So I'm like, well, something's something's absolutely wrong here. I still hadn't seen no OB. Um, I had only seen nurses. The nurse said, okay, we're going to go ahead and take you down to ultrasound. I go down to ultrasound. I get there. The lady tells me, hey, uh, have they tested this fluid? <laughs> and I said, yes, they did. They told me it was a yeast infection. She's like, when you go back out there, have them tested again. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you know, trying not to panic. Um, did she tell you what she saw in ultrasound that would make her tell you that? No. She didn't. My guess is that she didn't see a lot of fluid around him. And so she figured that that you had indeed ruptured and that you weren't actually wetting your pants. Um, Right. Because on ultrasound, you you could see that there wasn't a lot of fluid around the baby. But I was just curious if she told you what she was seeing or if she just Mm -hmm. said, oh, no, make them go test the fluid again. Right. I absolutely didn't realize that until later. Uh, I just thought she was like, "Mm," you know, in so many ways, not telling me everything, um, but also like pushing me to like question more (laughs) once you get up there. Right. Um, And also like, and I don't know if she had told my, um, that nurse anything at that time that, you know, that I needed um, to be seen this is where it starts to get a little fuzzy, but I'm still present. Um, so I go back upstairs and they say, okay, like we're going to send these re, um, once we get those results from the ultrasound, you know, we'll, we'll let you know, you could go ahead and get dressed. So I'm in the bathroom and I'm about to put on my clothes and I'm like, nope. I go back out. I tell Dan to call the nurse and she comes back. She's like, is everything okay? And I said, it's not. And I'm not getting dressed <laughs> until I see a doctor. Good for you. Oh, I'm so wrong. proud of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Time, something is wrong. Yes. And she was like, oh, well, you know, uh, the doctor that's on call here is currently in a delivery so it might take a little while but I'll let her know that you want to see her and I'm like fine we'll wait for however long so by this time my my sister um meets us at at labor and delivery um from her she works for AMR and then I have my husband Dan what's what's AMR AMR is a American medical response so she works for yeah. Okay. I, I remember uh, you said she was a first responder, but yeah, she, I don't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's one of those. Like, Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I'm like, well, if I don't know what other people yeah. aren't going to know. So it, that's the that's the company of the ambulance she works for. Yes, yeah, so the it. company of the ambulance she works for. So she gets there. Um, you know, I'm kind of telling her what's going on, and she's like, okay, and she knows everybody. Uh, Pueblo is like one of those towns where everybody knows everybody, and so she's like calling her friends, like, you know, something's going on with my sister. Like, she's now. Uh, you know, just, just know, like we're here trying to get a doctor in here. So she's working her magic. And and meanwhile, it's about 45 minutes and all of a sudden the doctor comes in and it's the same doctor when I had had my, um, 
when I had my subchorionic hemorrhage that I saw. Um, meanwhile, I find out my doctor went on vacation. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I never heard from my doctor. I don't, I only know you, um, from the first, you know, traumatic event that happened. She was like, oh, Hey, I recognize you guys, you know, how are things going? And I heard a little bit about what was going on. And so, and that you wanted to see me. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and just check you out. And she's like making small talk. Yeah. The nurse is there and my legs are going up in the stirrup and, you know, she's kind of doing her thing. And then it's just radio silence. She just stopped talking. Just stopped talking. And then she looked up at both of us and her face is just white as a ghost. And she calmly says, okay, this is going to happen really quickly. You are four and a half centimeters dilated. Oh no. Flight for life is on their way. We're going to, um, we're going to start a magnesium drip on you and you will likely uh, deliver this baby today. And I was talking to Dan about this and he was saying like, uh, he remembers the nurse's face and it was almost like he said, you could just see like sweat pouring from her all of a sudden. And these wide eyes, and he said that she was backing up from me. Like, not turning around, but just, like, backing up because she realized um, what critical state it all be started, to, you know, was unfolding. It went from, it's nothing to worry about. These are just variables to, I'm four and a half centimeters dilated. Right. I'm going to deliver this baby. Um, and if you had put your clothes on and gone home, yeah, you could have delivered him at home. I mean, I just, I didn't, I, this, I did not know this part of your story. And I just cannot tell you how proud I am that you, <laughs> you stuck to your guns and your intuition and said, I will not leave without being evaluated. You, you knew your body, you knew something was happening and that made all the difference in the world. So that's just incredible. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, I, uh, so I guess that was just, uh, that's where an all chaos broke loose and, and I was on magnesium and I felt the surge of heat <laughs> that you feel from being on, uh, magnesium. And, uh, I remember being all of a sudden bombarded by a room full of, of care providers and flight for life coming in, in their orange suits and, strapping me to that gurney and Dan looking up at Dan and looking up at my sister. Oh my gosh. Like this is, you know, trying to calm Dan down We're we have no idea what's going to happen. Um, and getting on that helicopter. And, uh, I remember the, the, the nurse that was with me on that helicopter ride. And the reason this is so, um, such a profound moment that I feel is important to share is because that whole time I was just like screaming for help, but nobody was listening. And at least that's how it felt. Um, and that moment when that nurse grabbed me and he put me in the helicopter and he told me, just try to stay as calm as you can. Um, he put the headphones on me and he's, 
held my hand the entire way and he said, we have you now and, you know, we're going to get you to where you need to be and just keep looking at the propellers, he told me. And I remember I'd never been in a helicopter ever. Um, this was also during the time that the California fires were happening. Mm-hmm. And when I was being lifted, the sun was on, the sky was on fire. And I remember the takeoff and I remember him telling me just to focus on the propellers. And so I did. Um, and I did not have one contraction that entire 20 minute, um, helicopter ride. And I just prayed. I prayed so hard. Um, and all of a sudden I just had this unbelievable calm come over me. And I am so grateful for that man. Um, that kind of took me and made me feel safe. Uh, and then also just my relationship with my faith um, and my dad and knowing that my child, who I didn't know if it was going to be a boy or girl, um, was going to be named after my dad and remembering the strength that he instilled in us ever since we were kids and kind of saying, like, I can do this. Whatever happens, I can do this. And as soon as we landed in Colorado Springs, I had my first contraction. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. And uh, I remember getting there and nobody was there. They took me out of the helicopter and they're like, where is everybody? The hospital had forgotten to tell them that we had left. (laughs) Oh, no. So we're just standing on the helipad and I'm strapped to this gurney and nobody's there. And so I remember like hearing a little bit more chaos. Um, so I had 20 more or 20 minutes of solace and then it was like, boom. Right. <laughs> but it's kind of like that, you know, your your faith and your dad and this beautiful yeah. son kind of it was all the calm came together. before the storm. Yeah. Yes. With this nurse that just really took care of you. I, I think yeah. that's how nice to have that helicopter ride be your calm um, before the storm. Yes, that's what it was. Um, so then I, 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 this man comes running up um, and he grabs me and he's like, we have you. You're going to be fine. Like, we're going to get you in here. I just stay calm. And, you know, 24 weekers, 24, 24 is the magic number is what he told me. He was like, you know, we get you to that 24 mark, everything changes. Yeah. And he's my OB now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, because he instilled confidence and yeah. Uh, and he was like, just hang on, you know, like we're, we're going to get through this. We're going to do this. And, and, um, now today he's, he's my OB. Um, that was the first time. And once I got to the room and they hooked me up to the monitors, they didn't check me. And they just kind of said, you know, we're going to we're going to ride this thing out. I had my first round of steroid uh, before I had left the hospital, which to any um, mom who has been in that situation, that steroid means everything. It's like the first moment to those micro milestones that you get to like, okay, you have this first steroid 24 hours and you could have that second steroid and then 
one more day and that's your you're at 24 weeks uh and it's just kind of that that's like the beginning of it all right of those little goals yes <laughs> you're trying to reach um and yeah uh I remember being you know drunk on mag because that's a thing um <laughs> yeah mag is awful it is it is truly awful I feel, uh feeling just like I had a hundred pound weighted blanket on top of me um and then all of a sudden my mom and everybody starts coming in and anybody who knows my family, um, if you don't, we, we travel in packs, um, we're called the wolf pack. And all of a sudden I, we just had like this flood of people and these are my people. And that is my comfort is having my people. That's awesome. And, uh, they all came into the room and, and, uh, I'm trying to stay as calm as possible. And the neonatologist comes in and introduces herself and, that was our first introduction to us knowing we were going to have a NICU stay, um, a micro preemie, a very long NICU stay. And here are all the not so certain statistics <laughs> and scary statistics about giving birth to your child. Um, from the very beginning, our neonatologist, our first one, Dr. Bazella, we had this unspoken mother-to-mother understanding. And I didn't even have to know that she was a mother to know she was a mother because she sat down and she her she made her presence known in a comforting way where I didn't feel like she was trying to treat us like any other patient. We were the only ones. We were the only ones that she was focused on. And I really, really felt that. And she was compassionate with her words. She didn't give us too many of the statistics like percentages, which for me was very helpful because I am a numbers person. I am a fact person. I read nonfiction. I like docu-series. Um, I like things that are real. And thank goodness she didn't do that because I don't think I would have been able to handle it and get through those next couple days or that day. Um, and the the takeaways was mainly just the care that we were going to be receiving, that assurance that we are going to do everything. It wasn't, you're 23 weeks and your baby's not viable. It was we are going to do everything that we can to make sure that your baby survives. It wasn't giving me false hope by any means, but it was giving me some hope. (laughs) It wasn't telling me, you know, only this percentage of 24-weekers survive, Um, but it was telling me 24-weekers kind of have this happen. And I can only give you what I've seen um, based on this research and based on my experience of caring for a 24-weeker. But that doesn't mean that that is your journey. Right. Um, so we just got to take it a day at a time. She kind of talked to me about um, or talked to us about the NICU stay and the ups and downs that are going to come and preparing us for that, um, telling us how, you know, how just different things were going to be. But to try to find um, room to process that, if you could, you know, right. and, and I think that was important. That to me was important. And from there, again, it was just kind of like 
being nervous and scared, but knowing I had to stay calm and taking this woman and all of these new people that we had never met and putting them in my pocket. Like, these are my people. (laughs) Again, adding them to our family and just saying, like, I'm going to rely on you so heavily. And I don't know if you know that, but you're we're keeping you forever. Um, (laughs) so that, that, that feeling was really important. And, um, I think that's a big gap between provider and patient that I hear a lot. And we were so fortunate that we had a lot of, um, our caretakers be able to, to cross that gap and, and make us feel comfortable. Yeah. And giving us that, that space. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think it's, it's huge. Um, I always use the phrase doctors are like people, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Because we all have our own personalities and we all have our own set of things that we bring to the table. And when you're going through whatever medical journey it is, it doesn't matter if it's labor and delivery or a NICU stay or um, end of life with a elderly parent, um, some doctors you're gonna bond with and get along with better than others. And it doesn't mean the care is better or worse with those particular people, but the personality and the ability to connect with them can make a huge difference in how you perceive the care that you're getting. Right. No, I agree. And um, I think that really set us up for our long NICU stay um, and how we were going to approach it and, and, and face it. There was no running from it, but you know, that, that really helped us. Let's transition to your NICU stay then. Um, yeah. <laughs> and talk about, uh, you know, we, we know that you delivered at 24 and one and you got to the mm-hmm. hospital four and a half centimeters. So tell me about how long you got to stay pregnant and how the delivery yeah. happened. Okay. Um, so we, um, spent the next 24 hours, um, watching monitors, uh, kind of letting the information settle in. Um, my in-laws were there. My mom was there. Um, my sister was there and, um, my middle sister was in Nashville and I, she was FaceTiming with me and, um, you know, everybody was there and, and I tried to stay comfortable. I remember, um, in the, during the evening when kind of everybody fell asleep on their, um, respective chairs, in the, in the, in the room. And then I was just kind of there by myself watching the monitor, um, and trying to, to understand how we all, how we got there, how we got to that point. The next day we had another doctor come in. Our, my, uh, my doctor, Dr. Ginrich, um, had, that was his last day. And so we were met by another doctor and um, the next day I didn't get much sleep. I was contracting throughout the night, but calmly contracting uh, and they monitored me through that. Um, The next morning we had a nurse come in and she kind of looked at the monitors and then she said, okay, well, the doctor is going to come in and talk to you. And I just felt like, okay, this is like, I feel like it's coming. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like it's coming. So here I am, 24 weeks in one. I had gotten the second steroid uh, injection, feeling good about that. Um, And he comes in and he says, okay, um, 
I'm looking at the monitor. We're going to go ahead and check you out now because I could see the baby's heart rate and it's kind of fluctuating, which leads me to believe that, um, you know, he could be positioning or the baby, because I didn't know it was a he, um, could be positioning uh, a certain way and on the cord. So we're going to have, we don't have time for epidural or anything like that. Um, and I was nine and a half centimeters dilated. Oh my goodness. Yep. So, wow. Okay. We're doing this. Yep. Here it comes. So here comes all the doctors and I see the isolate right there. Yep. Um, I'm standing there and I see Dr. Bizella and her team come in and they're just standing there like <laughs> just waiting, you yep. know, and just like this powerful, this, this power move, you know, just watching these um, excuse my language, but badass people in our corner <laughs> just like waiting and yeah. excited to to try to like help in any way that they can. Um, and they're waiting there, and um, I was told, you know, okay, when I, on my on my call, you're gonna push and you're gonna push down, and you know, uh, three pushes later, four pushes later, um, I hear Dan say, "It's a boy." awesome. And uh, I have my sister here on FaceTime. People think this is so funny, but my father-in-law, obviously he was just in the room and he's like, Oh, I think I'm going to leave. And I'm like, nobody's going anywhere. Um, (laughs) So everybody's in the room and um, there's Ricky and uh, Dr. Bazella had told me before I had pushed that if all goes okay um, with her and her team, that she would will Ricky over so we could see him. And she did that. Just a huge deal. And uh, and we got to see Ricky, uh, somewhat of Ricky, because his entire face was covered um, before he was taken away from the NICU, and uh, or taken away to the NICU. And yeah, then I'll, I had to be rushed to emergency surgery um, because my placenta was not detaching. And so I was losing blood, losing blood. And all of a sudden, the doctor was like, up. Oh, we're taking her. Yeah. And, uh, it turned again into like some traumatic moment. So there was like this sliver of like, Oh my gosh, like he's here. It's a boy. My sisters had had girls. Like everybody had girls. I have nephews, but they came later, but man, it, I thought for sure I was having a girl and it was just kind of that normal moment of, of being a mother and a father and coming into parenthood and what I would think would be a normal, um, celebratory, like, oh my gosh, like we're parents. It, this is so exciting. And then it immediately being like, boom, yeah. boom. Here's now here's the reality of yeah. having a 24 week baby who's going right. to immediately go to the NICU and not be, not be with you. But I, I do think it's great that you, you did find that piece of normalcy of the excitement of being a new mom and having Dan cry out, it's a boy. I mean, that's, those are such I don't want to say normal because what's normal, what's not normal, right? right? But like those are the the moments that you envision when you're pregnant. I'm going to deliver and it's going to be a surprise. And and even in this crazy journey of what happened and knowing that he's going to go to the NICU, there was just this tiny sliver of of what you imagined would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those moments are really, really important um, for me to add. And, and that may not be everybody's journey, but those 
were those tiny little moments that I think really got us through the NICU. So uh, fast forward into NICU. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I so I guess the first time I met met Ricky um, was when Dr. Bazella wheeled him over, and that was me seeing him, um, meeting him for the first time. And then, um, which I'm really grateful for, because like I said, I've heard from so many other moms that like never got to see their baby until like the next day or so for her to have that insight was like super, super amazing. I had recovered slightly from my surgery. I had very, very um, low blood count. I, I had lost a lot of blood. I was maybe going to have to be trans- transfused um, but I was stable and they told me, you know, like later on today, Dan can will you over to the NICU and you can be with your son. Yeah. I didn't know what to expect because we just had this like crash course 24 hours before of what the experience was going to be like. I didn't know, you know, Isolette and um, Billy Rubin lights and, uh, all of that. So, um, not knowing what to expect, Dan wheeled me down to the NICU and we signed in, we got our badges that said NICU parents. That was kind of like the first, um, the first understanding of what our day-to-day was going to be like signing into that same piece of paper, regardless of people knowing that, that, (laughs) that we're NICU parents, Yeah, (laughs) wearing the badge, going down, um, and then immediately, having the wash station there. And now I'm going to teach you how to wash your hands and how to properly wash your hands and what you will just be accustomed to for a long time. Going into the NICU, it was just a somber moment. And I don't know if that's still because I was coming off of the mag and I had just gotten out of surgery. I had like nerves as if I was, I don't know, meeting or getting in front of thousands of people, I just had the, this nervous stomach of not knowing what to expect. And then we rounded the corner. I remember going through this hallway and they had these little like domes that had lights on them. And they they were kind of like a, um, a planetarium, if you will. And it was kind of peaceful. But then also as I'm going down, I'm kind of peeking in rooms and seeing these huge isolates and these tiny, tiny babies. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, like this is really our life and kind of, um, getting emotional. Uh, and then we arrived to Ricky's room and there's a team in there. And I had never met this team of nurses. I, I remember seeing the respite, um, or the, uh, what am I trying to say? The, um, a couple of the nurses, I, I had remembered seeing them in the delivering room and just kind of standing there and seeing the neon lights of the Billy Rubin um, therapy going on and the whole room lit up with that blue, mm-hmm. that blue vibrancy and seeing this overwhelmingly amount of life-saving equipment surrounding him like a halo like it's on every side of him and um not knowing what to expect um once we got to the isolate and 
removing that blanket and seeing the the condensation <laughs> from the 98% humidity um, that was happening to emulate the womb he was supposed to be in. And seeing him there with his little goggles on and because um, his eyes were fused shut and wanting so badly to stand up. I'm like, I need, I need to stand up. I need to, you know, so Dan has me in the wheelchair. Can she stand up? Yeah. If you're okay, like go ahead and stand up and standing up and putting my hands on the isolate and just kind of for the first time, um, looking over at the nurses and asking if I could touch him. Sorry. You're doing great. It's so hard to go back and relive those moments that are so scary. Um, It's just hard. And the respiratory therapist at that time, um, had explained that um, eventually, yes, I could probably touch him, but Ricky wasn't oxygenating um, very well. And he explained overstimulus and um, that today probably wasn't a good day. And I didn't know what how to respond because it was like one having asked permission to touch your child and seeing him through this plexiglass and just that feeling of being so far away and having those first moments that mother and child should have being stripped away from you it was really really hard and then you know, I felt Dan kind of squeeze my shoulders, assuring me that it's okay, we'll get there. And uh, then all of a sudden, this ringing happened in my ears. <laughs> and I looked at Dan and I was like, I, I'm going to pass out. <laughs> and I don't know if it was because of just all the overwhelming things or what, but I got weak in my knees and I sat down on that wheelchair and... uh had this like moment of, of passing out. Um, and I knew I needed to get rest and, and things, but, um, that was kind of the first meet in the NICU, the first introduction to the NICU, um, and realizing the critical state that he was in. So when did you get to touch him for the first time? Um, it was the next day. Awesome. (laughs) This is really, kind of embarrassing story, actually. Uh, my, our parents, we had wheeled my mom and, and Dan's mom to the NICU, um, or Dan did, escorted them there, and they met their grandchild for the first time. And then it was like two at a time. People, only two people could go back. And so I wanted Dan to have a moment with his mom. And he took her back, and they came back, and he came back just glowing. And I was like, oh, how is he? And how was your time? And he was like, oh my gosh, I got to touch him. And I immediately was like, what? What do you mean you got to touch him? Like, I haven't got to, like, what did it feel like? I, I needed to know everything. I needed yeah. to know every detail. And I'm like, but this, like, 
I w- in my mind, this is how this moment was supposed to go. We were supposed to be doing it together. Like, what do you mean you went in there and you touched him? I'm so embarrassed by that because I just made him feel so small. And I took that moment from him because he was like immediately, oh, oh, I did something wrong. Like I did a big no-no. And I, I just uh, I apologized to him uh, yesterday for that <laughs> <laughs> as we're talking about it. Um, You're like two and a half years later, I realize. Yeah. And immediately I'm like, I got to get down there. I got to touch him. Like I got to, I got to be the one. So um, yeah. So yes, that was kind of an embarrassing, funny moment. And then having to relive that and apologizing for my uh, terrible reaction to that. (laughs) (laughs) But in all honesty, terrible or not, right? It's an honest reaction. It's, I mean, that's that that maternal like, oh, this is my baby and I need to touch him and I need to be present for these moments. And it it, it is definitely a learning moment as you guys as parents, right? Like you're the mom and he's the dad, but together you're the parents. How do you work through that NICU um, when you have different experiences on different playing fields, knowing that there's so much emotion that's involved with everything? Yes. Absolutely. Um, so that was the day, of course, like as soon as that happened, I needed to get in there and um, going in there and being coached how to touch Ricky. I immediately just I longed for that. I longed for that touch. Um, and through all this quarantine stuff, um, I'm grateful that we have like our family. And, you know, you think about not to get sidetracked, but you think about um, like people and being in isolation and the importance of touch. Right. And that, um, that healing, that healing aspect of it all and reaching in there very timid, um, but also knowing like, this is my baby. Like this is not what's natural to me and um, pressing my, my finger um, in his palm and his little fingers that were fused together like little frog feet. <laughs> and, uh, and they are kind of translucent and a little bit sticky. Just, yeah. 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 Yes. And just like feeling that and, and knowing, and then, you know, moving on from there and then cupping his little teeny tiny head and his feet. Ricky was one pound, 10 ounces nine and a half inches long, um, nine and a half inches long. That's kind of um, hard to, to yeah, imagine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really, yeah, really Think small. Think of a Subway sandwich. Okay. That's smaller than a foot long sandwich <laughs> <laughs> and being just completely in awe that this could be humanly possible. And knowing right then and there that this is a miracle and we've been blessed with a miracle. Yeah. And thanking God, unsure of what the future held, but thanking God for that moment because I realize his work, like I realize God's work, like this is incredible. Just really taking that all in and um, being present with Dan and being present together knowing that things were going to be hard, but that moment was everything. 
Ricky didn't have what they called the honeymoon phase (laughs) of a preemie. He struggled oxygenating. He had issues with his heart. We had care conferences um, with a specialist um, who was uh, a cardiologist who, who was trying to trying to remedy what was going on. Um, and we didn't know much, but we knew that Ricky was kind of a, it just seemed like he was a complex case. <laughs> um, and every time we went in for rounds, it was just kind of like, you know, Ricky's really having a hard time oxygenating. We hadn't hit that day seven where we were going to do the head ultrasound. So we had that hanging over our heads. Fast forward to day seven and Ricky was having his head ultrasound. Um, in addition to that, he started to have a little bit of uh, what they called like a dusky belly. And them not sure what that could be. Um, they kind of mentioned to us, you know, he could be showing signs of, of an infection called neck. Um, but they didn't go further into that. They wanted to monitor it because one day it would be really, really dark and then it would be gone. And right. then they would get another. So it was just kind of up and down. Day seven, the ultrasound came, and um, I remember. Um, I remember the doctor. This is a different neonatologist, Doctor Lindbergh, coming in and telling us, uh, you know, we got the results back from the ultrasound, and uh, we'd like to have a care conference with you guys about it. So then I'm starting to think back of when Dr. Bazella said, you know, head ultrasounds, this is the, you know, the grades that could happen and all the things. So I'm like, oh, boy. Well, and you immediately go, yeah. if it was fine, you wouldn't want to have a care conference, right? Right. So, like, conference what? Yeah. Okay. So something's going on. How about we just talk about it? <laughs> like, yeah, lay it out there for uh, me. Yeah. Let's not go to the care conference. Oh, just gosh. get it out there. Yeah. That's exactly how I felt. Um Again, I'm, I'm about the facts. So Dan and I sit down and there's chairs <laughs> and they come to our room. Um, at this time, we were able to like rent a room. I had been discharged, all the things. Um, we have our room and uh, they come in with the nurse practitioner, a nurse, Dr. Lindbergh, and then there's an empty chair. And we're all sitting there. And one of the nurses grabs tissue and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is Yeah, this like, is not gonna go well. Yeah. And then he's like, We're just gonna wait um on we're just waiting on the chaplain. And I'm like <laughs> We're waiting for the chaplain? Like, oh my gosh. And I'm squeezing Dan's hand, I'm shaking. And the chaplain comes down and that was when they told us that Ricky had endured a grade four um brain bleed. And it was significant. Um, and he said a lot of other things um, that are very cloudy yeah. <laughs> at this point um, because all we could really think about was grade four and right. what we had looked up and what that meant yeah. for his future. The benefit and the awfulness of, of Dr. Google uh, yeah. Dr. Google, yeah. And uh, Dr. Lindbergh that day became Dr. Doomsday because every time he came in, he was the guy that had the bad news. Granted, we loved him to death, but he was always the guy that <laughs> gave us that. That had news. to give you the bad news, yeah. 
<laughs> so he's saying, you know, so we're, we're in this care conference and he, he explains, um, at this time, uh, you know, you haven't gotten to hold your son and we understand, um, that that's really hard. And Ricky's a very complex case. We can't get him to oxygenate. He has the signs of the dusky belly. Um, and if, you know, that, if we can't remedy that, and if he does have this infection at this point, Ricky would not be a candidate for surgery. His body just couldn't take it. And that's what it would take if he did test positive for neck and then proceeded to kind of tell us that, um, due to his significant hemorrhage, these were kind of the things that we were um, going to be facing potentially in our future. And he talked about quality of life. And then he talked about the option to take Ricky off of life support and to hold him for the first time. And that they would put him on my chest And that they would give us as much time as we needed. I've gotten through this story quite a bit, um, but never at this point have I been able to say it without tears. And gosh, it was just the air being taken out of us. Um, we didn't understand. We didn't understand that we even had an option. It was just kind of like, this is what we have to do. And so they left us. Um, there was probably more conversation about his care, but, you know, they left. And um, Dan and I sat silently together. And I remember asking him how he felt, and he just broke down and was like, I don't want him to suffer. Like, I don't want him to not have quality of life and, and what that means. And we gathered our stuff calmly like went outside for the first time and got in the car and just tried to like figure out what we were going to do and I remember being stopped at a stop sign and we're sitting there holding hands crying um in silence and I see this giant hawk and I'm like oh my gosh Dan look at this hawk and we look up and it's just nose diving towards our car and it swoops down and this rabbit comes jumping out of the bushes and you, it was like slow motion. The hawk's claws like went and swooped for the rabbit and the rabbit like just missed the rabbit. And we we're like, Oh my gosh. And we looked at each other and we're forgetting about the conversation that just happened 30 minutes ago. And we're like, Oh my gosh, Ricky rabbit. Like he escapes, he escapes the death. Hawk. He escapes the hawk. Like, we're in this, we're doing it. We went back to the hospital and I remember asking for Dr. Lindbergh and he came back and I'm like, do we like, can we just like keep going? And he was like, oh my gosh, like what? Yes. Like, yeah, of course. Like, I don't want you to ever feel like I'm so sorry if I made you feel like you didn't have a choice. Like, you know, you say the words and, and we're, we're doing everything we can, um, you know, to, to make sure that Ricky has a different outcome than than what is being stacked up against him and like we're like all right like we're doing this and we 
prayed and we looked at Ricky and I told Dan, Dan, look, and his little blood pressure cuff had a rabbit on it. And that's where Ricky Rabbit comes from. Okay. You know, the transport happened after Ricky had tested negative for neck. Like they still couldn't figure it out. So they're like, okay, we're testing him for neck. He didn't test positive for neck. I don't know what's, we don't know what's going on. Um, He was stabilizing a little bit more, oxygenating a little bit better. And it was like we had turned a slight corner um, in in his stability. And so Dan, starting his new job, um, they were like, you know, if you have to, you know, you guys have to figure out what you're doing. Corey could stay here. Um, Dan, like, if you're comfortable, you know, you're welcome to go back to work. Um, I where we lived was an hour, an hour away. And so, you know, Dan made sure I was okay. I, I rented, we rented a room at the Ronald McDonald house and, you know, I was going to be there. Um, Dan left and that next day, nurse Ellie, our, our nurse, um, had encouraged like some handprints and things like that and then gave me a gift card she knew I was struggling I was pumping all the things and I had left Dan and and we hadn't been away from each other and it was like ugh, you know I just felt lonely um and I was with Ricky and she gave me this baby's arrest gift card and she was like oh newborn hope gives like these these gift cards out and uh they you you should go out and maybe you know, get some fresh air today and, uh, really encouraged me to do that. And I left, I left and I was like, okay, this is the only second, the second time I had ever left the NICU and by myself, no sooner than like maybe 15 minutes after I left the NICU, I get a phone call. <laughs> Nurse Ellie, uh, it was on the other line and she tells me, you know, Corey, how are you far from the NICU? And I said, no. And she's like, okay. And I'm like, Ellie, <laughs> She was like, I just need you to stay calm, but I need you to get back to the NICU when you can, and we'll have a discussion of what's going on. So I'm panicked. So I try as hard as I can to calmly get back to the NICU. I wasn't far. On the way there, I had called Dan, and I had told him, like, something's going on with Ricky. I don't know what, but you may need to come back up here. I get to the NICU, and there are a flood of nurses and this transportable um, isolate at our door. And I go in and Dr. Bazella is in there and she grabs my hand and she tells me while you were gone, Nurse Ellie noted they had been measuring his stomach. She noticed uh, during one of his cares that his tummy became distended And this is telling us that Ricky is going to need surgical intervention, which we can't do at this hospital. Um, So he is going to need to be transported to a level four in Denver. And there are two hospitals there. Um, And if you, you know, depending on what would be convenient to you, or I could recommend one. Of course, I want your recommendation, Dr. Bazella. What do I do here? <laughs> and she recommended Rocky Mountain Hospital for Children. She told me that she was already on the on the phone with Dr. Horst um, and that they were ready to receive Ricky and that they would take really, really great care of him. 
and I was there by myself and I was just like, how do I do this? Like, I was just starting to get into my groove here. I was just starting to get to know my nurses. I was just starting to, you know, let Dan go to work and, and say to myself, like, we're doing this and now we're being uprooted. And it was terrifying. It was terrifying. And, um, it was just that same feeling of being like unassured. They put Ricky into that little isolate very carefully and they let me be there for whatever reason in my mind. I don't know why, but I actually have a photo of them like preparing Ricky and getting him in that thing. Yeah. I shot a photo. I don't remember doing it, but I was like, I had to have taken that picture. I was the only one there. I don't know. Um, and Nurse Ellie sitting next to me and praying with me and telling me everything was going to be okay. Dan was on his way. Ricky was gone in the ambulance. I couldn't go with him, which was really, really hard. And so I just waited there. And Nurse Ellie waited with me uh, in the lobby. And when Dan pulled up, we were on our way to Denver. <laughs> that was our transport to uh, Rocky Mountain Hospital for Children, PSL. And when we got there, it had to be immediate that they put that Penrose drain in Ricky and release that pressure. We'd met Dr. Um, Shipman before all of that, and she kind of explained what she was going to do. So here we are, day uh, 11, and Ricky is going to have surgery? What? Like, how do you even do this? Um, I haven't gotten to hold him, like, and everybody else is going to be handling him. And it was just kind of like fascinating to me in a way how that was all going to happen, but I knew it had to happen. And just thinking the day before and talking about how Ricky wasn't a candidate for surgery, you know, and I'm thinking what changed, you know, like how did this change? And it was one day, yeah, one day. And that is what you do. You fight for that next day. You fight for the next 24 hours or, or even within that 24 hours, hours, um, minutes. And, that's what made all the difference was one day. My 23 weeks and six getting to 24, it was the difference of one day. Right. The 24 to 24 and one getting those steroids, that made the difference. <laughs> so um, that was our, our transport um, and our first welcome to transport. Yeah. Everything is different. Everything is new and each every NICU is just slightly different. Super different. Yeah. The other one was much smaller. They were actually doing construction at the time. And then you have like this large, this large NICU coming in there where a, like every baby is critical. Like, you know, everybody and you're not the only 24 weeker. Um, and that was just. Yeah. And where are we? And great. Now we're two, two and a half hours away from home or two hours away from home. And, and how are we going to do this? Um, but yeah, that yeah. was our, was our transition. And, um, mm -hmm. what helped make that transition go smoothly? Was it the nursing staff? Was it time? Was it watching Ricky get a little bit more stable? What mm -hmm. helped with that, that transition? Three things come to mind, and I'll I'll kind of be brief uh, with them. Um, one in which uh, was so helpful um, was just how blessed we were with supportive family. Dan is from Denver, and his mom um, and stepdad lived 
like 10 minutes away from that hospital. And so I was able to stay with them um, and not have to be at like a Ronald McDonald house or anything. So that was really helpful to me. Um, I know that's not the case for a lot of parents. And I'm reminded of kind of those humbling moments of, of what helped me um, and being grateful for them. So that was a huge piece. And back home, everybody had heard our story. And so everybody was just like so supportive. Um, so knowing I had that foundation was really, really helpful. I had a supportive husband who was working hard at home so that I can be with Ricky every day. I remember that transport and Jess, charge nurse Jess, coming in and introducing herself and kind of giving me the rundown on how things are different, but the same. You know, this is where we do rounds. And that was me also like wanting the facts. Like, when do you do rounds? When do you do cares? How do you do your cares? How involved can I be in cares? Um, you know, those types of things. And her her giving me that that peace of mind, like, okay, yeah, we we do um do rounds and you're welcome to be there for those. You know, if there's anything that you feel isn't right, we you know your baby best and, and we're getting to know Ricky. So, you know, we want you to communicate those things using Ricky's name. Oh my gosh. Hearing this person who has never met me and saying like my name and using Ricky's name was like, it's a big deal. So I started to be okay with it. And then day 16, <laughs> day 16, Ricky was doing great after that Penrose drain. We had turned a corner. He was more stable. I was starting to get more confident with uh, being in there with CARES. We had a nurse who floated from the PICU and the NICU. And she was like, oh, my gosh, did, uh, did you want to hold uh, Ricky today or did you get a chance to hold Ricky today? This is the first time we had had her. And I was like, um, I've never held Ricky. We're looking at each other and she's like, wait, you haven't held Ricky yet? I'm like, no, we have not held Ricky. The day before he got extubated and um, he was on the, the cannula and he was just doing great. And she was like, oh, my gosh, like, of course, like, we'll get you ready. Let's hold hold Ricky. And oh my gosh, there's a video that Dan took. Thank God he was so good about that, where she is taking tiny, teeny, tiny Ricky out of his isolate. And I'm standing or sitting there in the chair, just like shaking, waiting for him. And she's like, all right, here comes Ricky. And we're putting him on my chest, tucking him in and uh, telling me like, oh, you could, I remember Dan saying like, how does he feel? And she was like, you could probably barely feel him. And, but me saying, like, he just feels so good. Like, our son, like, since the day he was born, I say it all the time. Like, despite his physical scale, he embodies a giant. Like, he just has that spirit of a giant. And I talk about that moment as the moment I became a mother, despite being... A mom already for 16 days, that moment made me feel like a mom. And so that transition and that um, was the moment where things kind of shifted for me. Ricky did wonderful during our hold. Um, I got to hold him for three whole hours, uh, which they had kind of told me, like, just be prepared. Like, this is what Brady looks like. Like, you know, sometimes it's a little 
too much for them. And Ricky's still really small. Um, but he did so wonderful. And I was on cloud nine. And then Dan went home because things were great. <laughs> and then um, night nurse came on. Ricky had all of a sudden like shifted and he was bradying after Brady after Brady. And I'm, you know, going through it. She was walking in there like, all right, like, you know, Ricky, Ricky's starting to Brady a lot more. This is what you can do to like help. So teaching me to get in there, kind of tap his leg, you know, uh, get him, reminding him to breathe. Um, and allowing me that space. I had never, that whole time, it was just kind of like me being compliant with what the doctors are telling me I could do that day or being compliant to the nurses and watching them do cares and being present during the cares and actually doing them, but like waiting for their coaching. Yeah. Um, and Lori, on that day 17... That's when I became a NICU mom. <laughs> and I'm like, wow. Like, I don't know if I don't know if I've ever told her this story, but she the confidence that that girl gave me that I had a place within that NICU as a mother was just as important as her job as a nurse. And I wasn't trying to take her job, but she wasn't trying to take mine either. Yeah, exactly. And she was giving me that space to know that I was capable at being there for Ricky in this moment of, oh my gosh, his heart rate is dropping. That's not my realm. Like, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a nurse. Like, how, how, how do I, it's such an overwhelming feeling. Like, I don't know how to, what to do. It's panicky. You don't know if it's going to come back up. You're just waiting there and you're hearing the monitors, bing, bing. Thing. It's like, oh my gosh, breathe, Ricky. Um, and she gave that to me. She gave me that confidence. She instilled that in me that my role was important. And that, yeah, she's going to be right here, but you can do this too. You got this. And um, from then on, I was, I was important and I felt that importance and I was very, very, um, confident in getting in there doing Ricky's cares. And that transition, um, was where, where I felt comfortable and where, where it started for me. Yeah. Where, where you changed into being where truly I Ricky's mom. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's really hard to kind of find, I mean, that's part of the reason I wanted to do Mighty Littles in the first place is it's really hard to find your role as a mom in the NICU. It's a foreign place with a foreign language with tiny babies or big sick babies. Um, both are there. And you've got the doctor who has a role and the nurse who has a role and the respiratory therapist who has a role and the practitioners that have a role and the mom that also has a role. And I think it takes a little bit of time for parents mm -hmm. to start to feel comfortable in the NICU because you are learning about all these new things. But once parents are comfortable, they should feel like they have a role that should be happening in NICU. So I'm, I'm glad that you had that experience. I, a lot of people um, that I've heard complain about their NICU stay 
say, well, I just really sat there and I didn't have any any role in it. And I think it's really important for parents to to have a role in the NICU and to feel like a parent, not like a nurse and not like an observer, but to feel like a parent, to be a parent to their child. Yeah, absolutely. And to feel valued. Um, I'm not the one with, with the, um, the nursing degree or, you know, I'm not, I'm not an neonatologist, but, um, this is my child and I'm with him all day long and being heard and being seen and being valued in that what I'm seeing and what I'm, I'm observing could be mean that this is happening and me knowing that I have to advocate for him and not be afraid to speak up because they're not with him all the time. Right. You know, and, 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 and you so, are. yeah, yeah. And, um, I've taken that away from day 17 on. <laughs> and, I, and I think it's really important for parents that are in the NICU now to know that, that truly they know their baby best. We, when I see babies, I'm seeing a lot of babies and Mm -hmm. I'm seeing them for 15, 20 minutes if they're doing really well. And obviously I'm there longer if they're not doing well. Um, And the nurses only have three babies. So they see those three babies more than I see the three babies. And then the parents only have one or two or three, right? If you have multiples, but Mm -hmm. there's still, those are the only babies that, that you're seeing. Ricky was the only baby that you were seeing that day. So it's impossible for you to not know him better than I know him. I rely on that as a physician. I rely on the parents knowing their kids. Yes, absolutely. And that was just kind of like the, um, that was finding our primaries and knowing that I had that relationship with those nurses. Not only did I love the way that they were taking care of Ricky, but they also made me feel comfortable um, in, in giving me that confidence and being able to, to have just a conversation. Um, and that, like our primaries and those, those people that you hold really, really close, that's where things shifted. You really had this kind of super turbulent beginning. How did the remainder of the hospital course kind of play out? Did it continue for for you guys from your perspective? Did mm-hmm. it continue to be really turbulent or did it kind of smooth out? Were there any other big hiccups that you had? Yeah, um, there were definitely setbacks. But after that first two weeks of just like constant setbacks, um, it was, and that calm, like coming over the setbacks and the speed bumps that we had come across gave us, they were traumatic, but they, they, it just seemed like, okay, like this is the next thing. So how do we get past this? Right. You know, we've already gone through all of these things. This was scary. The brain hemorrhages were scary. The having to have surgery, um, for the belt perforation was scary, uh, so, you know, when the ophthalmologist is coming in and, and telling us and, and I'm staying in the room and they, I want to be present for the, the eye exam, the ophthalmologist is looking at me like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> you know, it was just kind of like, no, like nothing could be scary to me at this point. Okay. Like I, I need to be here. Um, you had found that resilience within yourself yeah. that, that, oh, I'm, I'm the mom. I I've got this. We've been through this right. already. I now have. I've got the chutzpah or whatever you want to call it right. to, oh my gosh. to stand like, in there with him. 
yes, be, uh, being there when Ricky had to be re-innovated and Nurse Jen, like, getting in there and, like, putting in the, or nurse practitioner, Jen, I should say, um, put it, you know, innovating him. And I'm in there in the corner and they're like, you know, should she be? I'm like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. All of those setbacks and those speed bumps didn't feel so turbulent. And so even though they were traumatic and even though they were big things that were happening, um, and some setbacks, I, I think we took them with stride a little bit more because we knew we knew how to take hard news it sometimes didn't feel that way but it was like I just had the switch come on for me anyway and I was like all right I'm rising to the occasion here yeah yeah this sucks still but what do I need to do to fix it how can we fix it right um so yeah Ricky had the the bell perf with the Penrose drain and then that didn't work for ever. And then he started to have that distended valley again. Then he was rushed to another uh, emergency surgery because he had a perforation in the ileum. So we had the um, that little section taken out and then it was the ostomy. Wow, that was tough because he had the ostomy site and then he had um, the... Uh, I can't remember the, um, the mucus fistula, site. the mucus, the, the fistula. Yeah. The fistula site. And so just you, for our, for our listeners yes, that don't yes. know what it is, um, if you take out a small segment of bowel, oftentimes you'll bring the ends of the bowel up to the stomach so that the, because you don't want to put them directly together, either the tissue is too friable or one end is really big and one end is really small or they don't go together. So you'll bring those two ends up to the stomach so that the stool actually comes out of the intestine onto the skin. And then the other end um, is kind of there to just provide some relief and is connected all the way down to the rectum. Um, So you have these two pieces of bowel that are attached to the stomach. Getting through that surgery and then kind of having to go through the roadblocks of having that ostomy and um, doing the refeed. So like Dr. Zimmerman was saying, at this point, Ricky hadn't like really eaten because everything has been about his bowel and his intestines just not being, um, not tolerating. So he had been on TPN, not, he had maybe a little bit of um, the, you know, the, the, during care times, my, my breast milk, um, the little swab in the mouth, swabs, the yeah. little, the milk icicles. Um, so he had not, he hadn't had any of that. And so, um, the refeeds were discussed and, and making sure that Ricky's body was still familiar with, with what the function was supposed to be of the intestines. And so they explained like this red, red rubber catheter and having to, um, place that in the mu- mu- uh, mucus fistula and then having the um, the system like work yeah. as it normally would if it was attached. Right. So essentially um, the you, f- you feed the baby th- through a gavage tube. So a tube that goes yeah. into the tummy. We're giving milk into that. The intestine processes it and it com- the stool comes out of the fistula and the nurses, they love it. Um, not really. <laughs> Um, they they get to collect that poop out of the bag that's collecting it, and they collect it up, and then they put it into the mucus fistula, and we refeed it 
through the distal part of the colon so that both the top part of the intestine and the bottom part of the intestine get used to having food in there. Otherwise, the bottom part that's not being used can, um, the fancy word is atrophy, and just kind of not function very well and just kind of waste away. Um, It's not like it disappears altogether, but then when you try to hook it back up, that distal part hasn't been used to working and so it might not work as well. So that's that's what it is. You collect the poop and you give it back. (laughs) It sounds so complex, but not complex. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, uh, Ricky's fistula uh, wasn't dilated enough so they couldn't get like the red rubber catheter to go through so that was a hiccup um but you know taking that in stride and then Ricky's skin breakdown on his belly was the most heartbreaking thing because we could not get the wafer um which is that little sticky thing that holds um the the colostomy bag onto the stomach it attaches so it's like a protective layer I guess so this wafer sits on to the skin and then the bag attaches to that wafer um, and they cut like these perfect little holes for the the two parts uh, of the of the bell that are coming out and you know naturally um, it just like breaks down the skin so bad Um, and Ricky's belly was so tiny. He was so tiny that, you know, normally like a belly is somewhat flat. His was rounded. And so to get that wafer on there where it would last more than a day was not. So we were every time he went to the bathroom, um, we'd have to change that wafer. And so it was like wound care coming up and having to figure out his broken down skin. Ricky just like screaming because if you could imagine ripping a Band-Aid off on a, the most intense, broken down skin, it, it was awful. So that was a huge setback. And then, you know, again, the reanastomosis or putting back the bowel was another surgery. Ricky having to be put back on the ventilator. Every surgery is just so scary. And you think to yourself, like, how the heck do they do it? <laughs> So that never really got easier, but it was just kind of, it became that thing. Like we need to do this in order to get home. Like it would like then home became the horizon. And it's like, how do we get there? Um, We need to do this so that we can do this. So even though it's scary, we're going to do it. And, you know, that first procedure and that transport was just kind of like that understanding that you got to do it. These are the life-saving measures that have to happen in order for you to get to where you're going. Right. Some setbacks and and how we dealt with that, but all hard, but they get somewhat easier, if you will. I don't know if that's the right way to describe it, but. I don't know if they they got easier as. Yeah, what is it? I feel like you get more familiar with it, right? So it's not quite as foreign the second time you do a surgery because you've already talked to the surgeon, you've already talked to the anesthesiologist, you've watched Mm -hmm. him recover once. So some of the big uncertainties aren't quite as big because you're, you're just more familiar with it. You know, the first time you try to, I don't know, drive a car, it's really scary. And the second time it's a little less scary. And the third time it's a little less scary. It doesn't, you know, like I kind of, I I think like you get more familiar with it. It doesn't mean you're not still worried as a mom and Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's not still hard to watch your child go through surgery, but the unknown aspect of it goes away. 
I agree. I agree. And that's a great way to just to describe it. It wasn't that um, it became easier. It was just what needed to happen. And I could either crumble and be like in this big pit of grief or I can um, choose to know that this is what is necessary in order for him to survive, in order for us to attempt at going home or any of that. So I want to segue just a second, just based on what you just said. I think that people have an idea of what kind of parent they want to be. And when you go through a NICU stay, you get thrown these bigger obstacles. And it does change how you are a parent, how you interact with your baby. How do you think your NICU stay and, and going through all of that turbulence at the beginning and then ultimately getting home because you've been home for for two and a half years now about how do you think it shaped who you are as a parent or or how it changed who you thought you would be as a parent you know Dan and I kind of talked about this too uh, a little bit before and thinking back then um, and preparing for our family and just that joy of like we're going to start a family and this is the way it's going to be we have older siblings Um, who have kids. And I've been around kids my entire life. And I had this picture perfect view of what that was going to mean for me. And um, when that is just taken away, you change, you change completely, you change uh, your perception of who you are, not only as a mother, but as a person. Um, and being in that NICU, I was so hyper-focused on what needed to be done for Ricky. I lost sight of me as Corey. <laughs> I was Ricky's mom in the NICU, and there was no room for anything else at that time. And I consumed myself with that. Dan, uh, being that he was able to you know, or not able to, like he had to go home and work. Um, and he would come up on the weekends and he would have that, you know, that little break in between. It was just kind of like, we, we just kind of went with the flow of things. And when you do that, you're just in this constant survival mode. And even though it sometimes feels like this is just my normal day to day, like, this systematic way of how I get up in the morning, where I'm staying, I had no time to think about how traumatic and different our life had shifted within months because you're just surviving. And being that mother that I perceived myself to be just went out the window. And I never really thought about it until probably a year later, like we're home and it's like, oh my gosh, this is not, uh, I, I, I hate the word normal. This is not how it was supposed to be, but this is what it is. And you could choose to ride that wave <laughs> or you can get sucked up in the, uh, the grief of why it wasn't that way, why it wasn't fair. And please believe me, there's space for both of those things. I was because just... that's a part of the grieving process. <laughs> part of the grieving process is to know that there is space to feel that way. It's not all, I'm strong, I'm going to get through this. Um, I really struggle with 
with that because um, the social worker, Sybil, who I'm very close with still, she had talked about and, and even us going back to visit, she's she has mentioned like, oh my gosh, like you're, you were just so strong through the NICU and, um, you know, you just had this way of getting through it uh, that I had never really witnessed. And, and I struggle with that a little bit. I struggle with that a little bit because I never want to come off as ingenuine or that I had this facade about me like I had my myself together. I was just surviving. And um, had I had my today mother <laughs> or my, my to, who I am today as a mother could have spoken to yeah. that mother in the NICU, I would have told her to be more mindful of herself and who she is as Corey and not just NICU mom. I would have told her that there was going to come a point when you are home and you don't have that systematic day-to-day, this is what I do, Dan's there, he comes on the weekends, and then you're all together and you don't have any of that, that your emotional stamina, that's when it comes crashing. And had I maybe taken more mindfulness to who I was trying to be in the NICU or who I would just, just was because I was surviving and I was trying to be there for Ricky, um, I would have told myself to, to give myself more grace and to give myself more mindfulness of what I needed um, and how I could be present not only for myself as a wife, um, as a friend, as just a, a person outside of caring for Ricky. Um, because you change. <laughs> um, and that, that is a huge part of uh, the kind of that, that grieving process of, of who I am as a mother and who I perceived myself to be as a mother um, and anticipated to be when we decided to have our family and, and really looking at that and stepping back, looking at our story and knowing, oh my goodness, like that's some hard stuff. Right. You went through a lot of hard things and you came out on the other side, which a lot of people don't. And I'm grateful to that today, but I wasn't thinking about it at the time. I was just surviving. And so I'm still figuring out to this day, I guess I should say, what kind of mother I am and what kind of mother I want to be. And taking that day by day and figuring out new things about myself and about my relationships and how that's molded me to how I take care of Ricky um, is a, a, an evolving, evolving thing. Yeah, <laughs> so. I think it's. I think it's really great that you use the word grief um, because I think it's important for NICU moms to know that it that that is a normal thing that needs to happen. And for some parents, it happens. Um, they know at the 20 week ultrasound that there's going to be something wrong and they grieve that pregnancy until they deliver and they've gone through some of those stages and they hit the ground running. And for other moms, they survive through the NICU and 
the grief comes crashing down later. And for other moms, they grieve while their kid is in the NICU. And it's really difficult to just function day to day while they're in the NICU. And all of those are totally acceptable and normal and necessary um, because you do have to grieve what you thought was going to happen in order to really fully embrace and be grateful for what you have. Um, And I don't think that that grief process is um, linear, right? Like you're still going to have days where the shoulda, coulda, what wouldas or the what if or if I had done it differently or why me, where those kind of creep back in. Mm -hmm. But but allowing yourself space and room to to say, oh, I know those feelings. That's the grief. I, I've I've been there. We've we've dealt with this. Yeah, life could have been different. But here's what I'm grateful for. You you have to give yourself space to do that to do that grieving. So I'm really glad that you that you brought that up. When you asked me, you know, where where I am or who I thought I was going to be as a mother, when I think about that grieving and and you know, once I guess you could say the dust settled, that's when I started to realize who I was as a mother outside of survival mode mother. Right. <laughs> and and all of that um came crashing down when we got home and and it's why I choose and why I find great peace in connecting with uh preemie moms and that's my niche. Yeah. I I really want to provide hope and provide resources and to advocate and to be that because I think if I would have had that and granted, I, I did have some moms that came out of the woodworks that I went to school with that like, oh, my gosh, I had a preemie. I had family friends that were going through the NICU having 24 weekers when we were there and calling me like, oh, my gosh, you know, so and so had a 24 weeker. And it's like all of a sudden they became like this. It's like when you I hate this analogy, like <laughs> compare this, but like when you buy a car and you've never seen this car, but then as soon as you buy it, then you start seeing them everywhere. Yes. <laughs> that was kind of what it was like. All of a sudden, all these 24-weekers. Yeah, everybody has a 24-weeker. Yeah, I'm like, wait. But it, it was, um, I I took that as like a sign that that, that was how I was going to get through it. Like this is, people are coming to you and and maybe this the reason why they're presenting in the way that they are is because you need that. You need to be able to talk about it with them. You need to be able to to care for them. And I, I think I've always had that um, in everything that I've done. I've always been kind of a a caretaker, if you will, um, and find importance in in that job. Uh, so, yeah, I'm still finding out what kind of mother I want to be. But this is who I am today. <laughs> I, I so I have three kids, um, and. Uh, my cousin also has three kids and you know you have your first and okay we're going along and you're meeting we're meeting the needs and we're figuring out how to be a parent and things are going okay and oh when this happened I switched and I did this and okay I've got this parenting thing figured out Mm -hmm. and then my twins came along and oh my gosh the it, it A baby is not a baby is not a baby, and a child is not a child is not a child. They mm-hmm. are who they are, and they are who mm-hmm. they are from the minute that they're born. And all of the things that I did for my older child that made me think, oh, that worked really well. I'm a good parent. 
I tried with one of my twins and I was like, oh, I am a bad parent. That did not work. (laughs) I thought I would have known this already. But the reality is that all children are different and all of their needs are different. So it doesn't, whether they're preemie or their term or they have special needs or they have CP or they don't, you Mm -hmm. become the parent to the child that you have. Absolutely. And your parenting changes, your priorities change, your what you want for your child comes out of your child. And so I feel like, yeah, I had all these ideas of what kind of parent I wanted to be, you know, who doesn't mm-hmm. want to be the um, exclusively breastfeeding, baby wearing, <laughs> I never yell parent. Well, <laughs> I, that was not my story. Uh, I went back to work at my I never made milk. It didn't work. So I'm a neonatologist who has formula fed babies because fed is best. So my parenting changed. My desires changed as the kids got older, as I saw who they were and as I saw what I was capable of doing. Um, So I, I think you really do become the parent that your child needs. And I, I don't I don't know that I was aware of that before I had kids. Yeah. Yeah. I think you could uh, prepare as much as you can or you think you can. And then, you know, there's something life happens, life. (laughs) Uh, And then you realize it can't be found on Google. It can't be found in these self-help books. Um, You just kind of have to live it and then decide, you know, how how to get through it. And I I love having that perspective and I fall short a lot of times where I'm here I am preaching to to these Nikki moms about taking care of themselves and and not to get down when you know you have somebody come up to you and ask you how old your child is and they give you the sideways look like wait what he's how old he's not walking and how to like really deal with that yet some days that gets to me Right. And that's okay. And it's okay to be like, yeah, this is our life and we're going to do everything we can do to give Ricky what he needs to be his version of 100%. But there's some days where you get caught up and, and it's it's hard. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. Th- both of those things are okay. And it doesn't make me a fraud. It doesn't make me incapable of helping others or giving them advice and receiving advice. Right. Yeah. It makes it makes you human and it makes yeah. you a parent. And it makes you honest and it also makes you a little bit vulnerable because you you're saying hey look these are things that i know work but i'm not i'm not perfect at it yeah it's hard to admit that you're not i mean who doesn't want to be perfect well right. I, i'm not perfect i mean, I mean everybody it, makes mistakes yeah it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah we we joke um when i was a teenager i had a poster okay i remember it as being you know like four inches wide by 14 (laughs) inches tall. My parents remember it as being the size of my bedroom door. And it was bright red and it had a gorilla face right in the center of it. (laughs) And it said, when I want your opinion, I will give it to you, right? So that is very much my personality. I am, I know what I want. I know where I want to go. I have strong opinions, but, but the reality is... I will admit this on air that I am not perfect and I don't always know everything, especially when it comes to parenting, because parenting, it changes and it swerves and 
what the parent that you needed to be in survival mode when Ricky was in the NICU is mm-hmm. different than the parent that you needed to be once you got home. And, and you had to reincorporate your whole life living in the same place and not just seeing each other on the weekends. And yeah. now you're here 24-7. And you know what I mean? Like, yes. it's like you really have to change. And so it's okay to be survival mode parent. And it's okay to be... Mm-hmm grief struck and parent and it's okay to be positive uplifting rah rah I'm a cheerleader parent and I think the reality is that most of us are all of those and some of us get stuck in one place more than another that question when I got to that you know I'm just thinking like oh my goodness I I can't directly answer that because I still don't know um the mother that I want to be you know I'm just going with it I was a I I am a proud preemie mama um to a 24 weeker and I'm additionally now a proud CP mama to a boy who you know due to his prematurity has cerebral palsy and and how to to go through that and and um learn continuously learning and just being open-minded um and I think the NICU gave me that it gave me that feeling of you don't have control, so let it go. And in a way, I'm I I would take back obviously if I could the NICU because um, I would never want my son to to have to go through that if I had to choose. But because of it, um, it's really shaped me to uh, to understand and to know that I don't have control. And as soon as I try to get that control, uh, the rug is quickly taken from underneath me. I had a, uh, we were transparent with our, with our, with Ricky and his traumatic birth. We have a large family. We were keeping our community updated. Uh, again, we came from a smaller town and everybody knew we were up in Denver and what we were going through. Um, and when Ricky had his brain bleed, um, that was, that information was provided through a GoFundMe page that my sister had set up. We were fine with it because we wanted, you know, we wanted to be on the prayer trains and and keeping everybody up to date. And we were really in need of prayer. But you wouldn't believe the amount of unsolicited advice that I had received about parents who regretted um, not taking their child up a child support or life support um, because of their quality of life or how, you know, the right thing would have been to do this or that. And, oh, my goodness, I'm thinking to myself, if if you if, if you are that person that wants to be supportive to a mom or a parent or whatever in the NICU who gave birth to a premature baby or any baby that may be sick, pause before you hit send, before you say anything and ask yourself if what I'm saying is relevant, is it helpful? Could it be perceived as hurtful? Because in my mind, I think people genuinely want to be there for you and they just don't know how to how to ask you like in so many ways how you are because it is it's a very awkward if you will like how do I break the ice here 
So going through that and not having those tools and then after the NICU, just knowing that they were coming um, and because we had gotten it so many times, the, oh, he's not walking yet or, uh, you know, we're, oh, but he, he was diagnosed with mild cerebral palsy, right? So um, it just kind of like those little things. And um, I have shifted, I've tried anyway to shift that um, my response to not be so offended um, and know that these people probably have a genuine uh, reasoning for asking what they're asking. They just don't know how to ask it, which is normal, um, I think. And seeing that they have good intentions and using that as an opportunity to share Ricky's story um, or to share a bit about Ricky that they may not know and what makes him who he is and why he's not walking, but what he's working on. That has led to so many more questions that are relevant and that make me feel good and proud to talk about Ricky. It's kind of like breaking that ice for them and giving them um, the balls in your court and kind of giving them that, well, you know, this is why this is like this. And then in return, them feeling either comfortable enough to ask further questions. Um, it's just been a, a, a way of me to educate and to advocate and um, to try to understand inclusiveness and what that means. And um, you can't know what that means unless you ask questions whether or not they are completely inappropriate. <laughs> um, so I try to take it with grace and try to use that as an opportunity to, to educate. And um, I, would, I would use that advice uh, for, for NICU moms. It, it's never easy to hear those things because it makes you feel like you did something wrong and you fall back into that. Like, you know, when people ask me, do you think it was because you were exercising so much or what? Like, oh my gosh, you'd have to think back. Like, so what you were saying is that by me exercising that I potentially could have been the reason why all of this happened. And that's a really, really tough place to be in. And to try to remind yourself that it, it, it isn't your fault is, is really, really hard. So there are days where, where questions like that are hurtful, but if you can dig deep because you know who you are striving to be and you see your, your child and, and how they could be used as a tool to educate. Um, and, and Ricky is so joyful and he has so much joy. And if you just give him a little bit of time, like he will change your perspective on how you look at these things. Um, and maybe when you see another 24 weeker, you know how to be supportive of that parent because I remember when I said this really inappropriate thing and I should have known better, but I didn't because I, I, you know, I didn't have the right tools, but this mom or this parent gave me a better understanding of how I could be more supportive. Do you have an example of a really good question that you've gotten from a parent or, or from a friend who's just, you know, genuinely curious about what's happening and they 
they've offered up some really good icebreaker questions that that kind of helped set the stage for you to be able to do more education and more conversation and them to really get to know Ricky more. Do you have any examples of questions that you've really yeah. liked? Yeah. Um, I've had, you know, during the NICU, I've had uh, friends ask me how they can be there for me, giving me that space, not like feeling pressure, mm -hmm. but just letting me know that they are there. And if, and when I am ready to talk about that, that they are ready to receive it and having active listening, giving me that space to, to vent was really, really helpful during the NICU. You know, what, why did you name him Ricky? Or like asking questions that make you just like a normal mom. I'm just a mom. You know, I, I, yes, I am a NICU mom. Yes, I had a traumatic welcome into motherhood. Yes, my son went through a traumatic, like heartbreaking story through the NICU, but it's a triumphal story. And, you know, asking me why I named him Ricky or, or, you know, what we're doing that makes me normal or asking me on a play date. Oh my gosh, like that's amazing. Why are people afraid to ask me to go on play dates just because Ricky's a creamy? <laughs> you know. <laughs> like I'm just a mom, like giving me that that those normal questions like you would, not being afraid um of just treating a person like a person. What it made me think about when you were saying, you know, why wouldn't you ask me on a play date? I I'm a mom of a preemie. It's it's okay. Um it kind of brought me back around to present day with all of this coronavirus and mm -hmm. how taking a preemie baby home can feel so isolating um, and how right now everybody is living through what preemie moms really feel when they go home because it just can be so isolating. Oh, yeah. And we, we felt every bit of that. We went home on Ricky's original due date, which was December 29th. And I mean, we're talking peak RSV flu season and excited to go home uh, and being terrified of being like, okay, we're free, but we're not really free. And that fear of not having my nurses and my family, um, my NICU family, at arm's reach, that transition home was ooh, really, really, really tough. It, it is that sense. And, and we talk, we've been talking about that recently with, with the coronavirus. And, you know, in the beginning, it was kind of like, you see those memes uh, and, and us preemie moms are sharing with each other, like, everybody's freaking out about wiping down everything. Welcome to the club. And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. This is just what we are used to. This is our norm. Um, and it, it's been, you know, I would never want anybody to have, have that understanding, that deep understanding of what this feels like, but it has, um, I have gotten phone calls from some of my friends that are like, oh my gosh, this is what this you is did. What, yeah. This is what you did. Like, uh, you know, uh, now I get it or now I understand. And, you know, having, having that understanding is kind of, I don't know, it just kind of makes you feel like. Like what you went through was really hard, but you got through it. And um, it gives people a little bit more perspective of, of where we where we came from and right. what we're going and through. And what you yeah. got through, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. 
And so with that, we are going to wrap up our podcast for today. Thank you so much to Corey for coming on and being willing to share her story of her and her husband and her son, Ricky's experience in the NICU. I thought I would give you guys a sneak peek of what is to come um, over the next several podcasts. My goal is to launch podcasts every other week. Uh, Coming up here soon, there will be an interview with Megan. Her baby was born at term with some late complications that landed her term baby in the NICU with a real questionable outcome. We are also going to have a couple of moms, 27, 28, share their story. We will have an interview with the woman who runs the organization Tiny Superheroes and talk with her about her organization and and what her goals are for her company. Um, And that's just a a fraction of the podcast that we're going to be seeing over the next two months here. Thanks again for joining us. I really appreciate you guys tuning in and hanging in there with us to the end of this podcast, whether it was all at once or on several occasions. Um, Please, if you are listening, go to wherever it is that you subscribe to your podcasts and leave us a review, leave us a rating, subscribe so that we can get these stories out to even more moms and become more visible. Hopefully, uh, we will see you again in a couple of weeks with our next episode. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Keep saying it won't. No.